Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to CoronaPod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns and we've got a vaccine. Hello and welcome to CoronaPod. I'm Noah Baker and joining me this week is Features Editor Richard Van Norden. Richard, how are you? Oh, doing well, Noah. So this week we're going to talk about something that I don't think we necessarily expected to be quite as big as it was when you first started uh, working on it. And that is about harassment specifically to do with scientists that have spoken out about their work during COVID and about their work about COVID. There's a feature article that people can go and read. But to start off with, can you tell me where the idea for this story kind of came about? Yeah, so we were actually talking to the Australian Science Media Centre. That's an organisation in Adelaide. They they connect scientists and journalists together. And they were saying they'd been alerted to this campaign of, of hate emails to scientists. And they'd done a little poll of researchers on their lists of scientists they contact to talk about COVID. And they'd found that of 50 respondents, six people had said they'd got death threats and another six people had said they'd got threats of violence. And I was already aware that very famous scientists had been in the news for being abused really seriously. Tony Fauci had death threats. He had security guards. Chris Whitty in the UK was sort of pushed and shoved in the street Christian Drosten in Germany had put on Twitter that he'd got a pass of, of liquid at home and it said, you know, drink it. So I knew that this happened, but I thought, ah, OK, maybe this is more common than I thought. So we decided to just try and reach as many scientists as we could and just ask them what they had experienced after talking to the media. And science media centres around the world agreed to help us on this. They sent out our survey to scientists in Germany and Taiwan and the UK Uh, in Canada and in New Zealand. And we also reached out to scientists in Brazil and the United States with the assistance of some learned societies in the US. And we managed to get 321 scientists responding to us. And I think to our shock, the results were quite saddening, which was that 15% of these scientists said that they had gotten death threats and 22% said they'd got threats of physical or sexual violence. And overall, a bit more than 40% said that they 
had suffered emotional or psychological distress after speaking about COVID to the media or posting on social media. So, I mean, that was quite high, right? It suggests that rather than being rare events, these are these are quite common, not the majority, but quite common. And so really the whole story is based around exploring that, what these attacks are, and talking about what this means for institutions who might want to help scientists deal with this, and of course condemning this abuse. Absolutely. Now, I mean, it's really notable that the results of the survey that Nature put out actually were even more sort of worrying than the results of the survey that was done by the Australian SMC. I want to get to some of those topics that you mentioned, what should be done about this and so on. But the first reaction I had when I saw the results of this survey was to think back to actually a conversation that you and I had a long time ago, back in one of the early chronopods, where we were talking about how scientists are sort of becoming more public figures and what things like the increased interrogation of science across different media, media that wouldn't maybe normally cover science. But one thing we didn't really talk about was the scientists themselves. You know, we talked about the impact on science as a whole, but not necessarily on the scientists. And that's really what's kind of come out here, when it came to reporting out this story, you spoke to scientists. What was that like? Yeah, so it was myself and a, a reporter, Bianca Nogrady, uh, in Sydney, who, d- who did a great job talking to lots of scientists. So I spoke to Tara Kirksell at, um, at the Johns Hopkins Centre for Health Security in the United States. And it was pretty disturbing. She got an email saying that, that she should be executed. And I think she was quite used in some ways to this. She's actually been an athlete. She won a medal in the Olympics and she immediately reported it to Johns Hopkins who handed it to sort of campus security and they actually figured out who sent this email and told them to stop. But I know that other people that Bianca talked to were much more shocked and completely unprepared for what they walked into Um, because you're talking about just vitriolic abuse emails, um, in some cases, parcels sent to your house, even your PhD students being attacked, so not just yourself. And it sort of just becomes, I think, just demoralising and tiring to see those messages pouring in. And some of the people who spoke to us said, well, you know, this is what you get when you become a public figure, and it's something that you need to be trained for, this is what science media centres do, for instance. It's what your institutions do. And this is unpleasant, but it's, an, it's a side effect that you should expect if you're becoming such a public figure. But it's just not that easy. And one of the things that was clear from our survey was that the scientists who said that they experienced the highest frequency of trolling and personal attacks, the ones who said, I was always or I was usually trolled, they were more likely to say it affected their willingness to speak to the media in the future. In many ways, you know, it seems very logical and it doesn't surprise me that people that are receiving really, really high amounts of abuse as a result of things they're saying in the media or things they're saying on social media, that's a really strong, you know, push to stop, you know, speaking to the media and so on. But there is a real danger here because if scientists become less and less willing to speak out and provide the expert voice, then there are fewer and fewer people that have that expertise to be able to help people become educated about the problems in the first place. It almost feels like a bit of a vicious cycle. This reaction is going to lower the quality of the communication and lower the public understanding, which in turn leads to more division, which in turn leads to more anger, which in turn leads to more abuse. And it sort of continues. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's one reason to call it out, to say that this stuff is unacceptable. 
um, and that there's a sort of boundary of criticism that you shouldn't go over. Because what's the point of this abuse? It's just intimidation and hate. It doesn't help at all. I mean, even in the really fraught topic of what are the origins of the coronavirus, and there are people on various sides of this topic, some people saying, I really think that it, you know, it's a comes from natural origins and other people saying no I really think it comes from lab leak and there's discussions about how much do we know should scientists have said more and even in that um, researchers on both sides have been abused and one comment made by Alina Chan a researcher who's sort of done a lot to look at could this virus have something to do with research related activities she said the thing about all these abusive attacks is you don't get anywhere. The people who make the abusive attacks make their side appear completely unreasonable and dangerous. And then the people who receive the abusive attacks can quite correctly say that they've just been horrendously abused. So it makes them retreat from discussion. And what's more, sometimes it derails the discussion and people talk about the abuse more than they talk about the issue in the first place. Exactly, exactly. So that's why I think it was really important to say this is happening at quite a large extent. We don't know the full extent. This wasn't a random sample, of course. These were just scientists who, who responded to our email. We tried to reach a lot of scientists. But, you know, this is happening and it needs to be called out and it's not acceptable um, and it's not new. It's happened to scientists um, who talk about climate change, who talk about vaccines, who talk about gun violence. But probably because the coronavirus pandemic is just such an all-encompassing event, scientists were telling us that this is happening on a larger scale. We can't prove that. But that's what scientists were saying. They knew colleagues who had it happen to them as well. And there were even researchers in our survey who said, well, I, I personally haven't actually been abused, but I have seen the abuse that's been dished out to other people who are like me, and therefore that's why I'm really hesitant to speak to the media. And I suppose one other thing that is really contributing to this is that this has become a highly politicised issue. So it's not that people just really, really strongly disapprove of the scientific methods people are using. It's because people's statements about research are being interpreted as political statements, and that is driving a lot of this abuse, as far as we can see. Exactly. And something that some scientists said is that um, politicians and governments and, and the media are, if not actually making the abusive comments themselves, although sometimes they are, but in most cases not, um, they're not really condemning it. So they are, to some extent, tacitly allowing it and perhaps driving it. Um, and there needs to be a really clear separation of this is the data, this is what scientists think, this is the policy discussion that's being had, scientists probably have views as well, and we can discuss all of that versus just straight abuse. And a lot of that abuse, so you mentioned that some of it is through email, there's been things sent to people's homes, but a lot of this abuse is based on social media. Is that part of the discussion here, whether or not those that run social media platforms have a responsibility to tackle this as well? Yeah, completely, completely. So we've got two scientists who reported their abusive comments they got to Twitter, and they were just told, well, it doesn't violate our terms. Andrew Hill, who got all this abuse after he retracted his study on ivermectin because he'd said it seemed quite promising and then some studies got retracted. He said, right, I'm, gonna, I'm going to withdraw my meta-analysis here um, and think again. And he got massive abuse. He got sort of pictures of hanged corpses and, and things like that. And Twitter said, no, nah, this doesn't meet our standards for um, abusive content. God, yeah, abuse for retracting your study because there was questionable data that was brought up. 
I mean, it's just, there's so many ways in which there's a lot of conflicts and frustration there that a scientist is abused for following good scientific process in order to be able to try to send out good information. And then there's an active reason that that scientist might be reluctant to do that in the future because of the threats they're receiving. I mean, this is beyond just like individual people facing horrific abuse. These are threats that could impact the sort of functioning of science. Yeah, completely. But I mean, the abusers in this case who were very pro-ivermectin, I mean, what this tells us is they don't really care about the science. They just want to push more ivermectin on people. So I think this has been a conversation that's happened so much, but I think everyone thinks that these these platforms need to stamp down more on abusive content, and that's that. But the problem is that these platforms are so big that the only way to do this is, is probably through automated algorithms, and it's then quite easy to avoid these algorithms. And, you know, do we really want social media companies being the censors, deciding what's showing and what isn't? This is a very difficult balancing conversation to have, and it probably comes down to very detailed discussion in the end. So I don't know many people who don't think that these platforms need to do more and they have, to be fair to them, been doing more and more. I think they've changed their tune quite a lot, actually, over the last two years. But there's so much that still gets through. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked about what social media companies can do. What can other people do? You know, we mentioned that other media outlets like Nature can try to call this out and condemn it and make it clear that this is not acceptable. But there are so many other places that you could go to. Employers, for example, what what can be done? Yeah, so I don't know whether this is, this makes you feel better or not better, but we, we asked in the survey scientists, you know, did you tell your employer about this and what happened? And many scientists said they didn't tell their employer, although when we're talking about serious abuse, five out of six did. So, you know, as the scale goes up, more scientists tell their employers. So when they tell their employers, 80% were very or somewhat supportive. So I, I find that sort of comforting, although it also means that 20% were in the category of not at all supportive. So I don't know, what, I don't know whether you find that concerning or not, but that's what we found. But there is things that institutions can do, right? They can provide support staff to help you filter or block your, your emails or social media. They can remove your contact details from websites. They can help you report incidents to police, uh, like in the case of Tara Kirksell. And some institutions have a lot of experience, especially with attacks on researchers who use animals in their studies, making statements to say, this is why this research is done and we condemn abuse and just generally providing help to shield a research from the worst of the abuse and to help police or campus security officers guard labs and follow up on the comments that are being sent. And it's just very important to tell people, like, don't suffer this abuse on your own. We've also put up a Science Media Centre guide on dealing with harassment, which is very useful. There's sort of things you can do on social media where you can mute certain messages and people some people just delete their Twitter account. And I, th- I suppose also just more training for scientists on public engagement and what to expect. Like a lot of researchers during the pandemic have felt an obligation to speak out in response to misinformation, disinformation and so on. But as people have said to us, scientists aren't as standard trained on how to do public engagement i mean in many ways that's yours and my job and it can be shocking to see what the response can be yeah there is a a positive point in the survey that we asked people how they felt about their interactions with the media and they were overwhelmingly positive about their actual interactions with the media so i think the balance is that if you are going to talk to the media 
media training sometimes has this connotation of, you know, we'll teach you to be a robot, you know, we will Zuckerberg you so that you will come across as giving just the right answers. You'll lose all your personality, but you won't actually say anything too bad. But it's not really that. It's it's really just making sure that you know what you want to say, um, talking to someone beforehand, a little practice interview, see what you stumble over, just preparing yourself to just clearly explain what you've done and sort of to understand what the public might want to ask. And that's about all it is. And if you're going to be commenting on social media, perhaps asking even a friend, you know, what do you think about the tone of these comments? We had an anecdote in this story from someone who regretted some very hasty comments they made in one interview where they um, said something like, yeah, you can have a vaccine or you can go to heaven early. And um, something which I couldn't say on the podcast and wasn't the story, but I think cut for lack of space was that this led to an investigation into his university. People complained about this. And sadly, he only learned about it three months later when his university told him that he had been investigated and cleared without his knowledge. So the whole thing was very um, traumatic for him. But reflecting, he thought, hmm, yeah, okay, maybe the way I put that wasn't quite right. Maybe I should have tempered what I said. Because a thing that's a bit difficult to get into is that in this pandemic, some academics themselves have been very strident, almost attacking each other as well on social media. It's not just um, paragons of virtue scientists who are being abused and attacked um, by horrible members of the public. There's been some pretty ugly and uncivil slanging matches between researchers themselves. So I guess I'm sort of also pleading for some civility in that debate as well. Well, this is certainly something that has really piqued the interest of everyone in Nature Towers. So if there are stories you want to share, Nature would always be interested to hear them anonymously, of course. Are there ways that people can get in touch if they want to? Yeah, we've got a little public survey now out in the story um, where you can confidentially tell us if you've experienced harassment. We won't be sharing your details with any third parties. We'll treat it in confidence. So that is the first place to go. You can also email our sort of general news email address, which is tips at nature.com, despite the name of that address. Again, it's treated in confidence. So I would say if you want to contact us and talk to us about it, those are two places to go. And I would also say contact your institution if you're worried about things or contact science media centres, I think are very good and have been very helpful in sort of mediating scientists interacting with the public during this pandemic. Okay, thank you so much, Richard. An intense story, but really fascinating in its own way. For now, I'll leave you. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thanks, Noah. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.